This is chapter 175 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Cherenkovich, and this week, we're chatting with author and publisher Deneen Milner about why there need to be more children's books featuring black characters doing everyday things. And a little bit later, author MJ Rose stops by to regale us with the tale of a long-lost Romanoff tiara. If you're a frequent listener, then you know I like to throw a stat or two your way every once in a while. Well, now is one of those times. According to the Cooperative Children's Book Center, there are far fewer kid books published featuring black main characters than there are of white characters or even animals. Yep, animals. But author and publisher Deneen Milner is on a mission to change that. I had the pleasure of talking with her about publishing's diversity problem, as well as why it's so important for children to see themselves reflected on the page. You're already a prolific author, and now you're the founder of a new children's book imprint uh, through which you intend to share everyday stories that color the worlds of black children, as you put it. Now, that seems obvious, but for those people who can't wrap their head around that, can you tell us what that means? If you look at the numbers of books that feature black children or black subjects, particularly children's books, um, and look at them as a whole, what you'll find is that many of them uh, focus on three distinct uh, topics. It's either slavery, civil rights movement, or some kind of um, celebrity or first. And so lots of books about Martin Luther King or Harriet Tubman or Muhammad Ali. And those are great books to have and useful for all children when they're, uh, you know, learning about the past and sort of getting a picture and a window into how they should move forward in the future. But I submit that black children and white children, any child who reads a book, deserves to see black children in something other than these boxes that sort of um, paint them as having gone through pain and now uh, Martin Luther King had a dream and it's done. Um, I feel like black children should be able to pick up books just like anybody else and see themselves on the page, being loved on by their parents, being, uh, you know, going to school for the first time and being nervous or, uh, you know, making best friends and having falling falling outs and getting back together again. Uh, just, you know, normal everyday uh, stories that reflect who they are in the now and have been for the longest time and celebrate their humanity, not just look at the things that um, sort of hurt uh, their humanity or make them fight for their humanity. I've heard you say it so simply. It's it, You kind of just have to realize kids are kids. They're, they all believe in Santa Claus or the Tooth Fairy. They're all scared mm-hmm. of monsters in the closet. And yet it's really, it's really a crazy to think that stories like that written for children rarely feature black and brown children. Oh, yeah, you'll find more books about turtles talking about friendship than you, and bears than you will black children, which I think is, is an absolute travesty. And it wasn't until I had my own children that I really understood just how big a dearth there was of those books. So I had my first baby in 1999, and when I 
found out the day that I found out that she was a girl and wiped the, the sonogram group off of my belly and uh, left the doctor's office, the first thing I did was I ran to a store. I bought a black doll. I bought um, a dress because I found out that she was a girl. And I went looking for books that spoke specifically to her family and, and how she was going to be loved and the environment that she was going to be raised in and things that I wanted her to know about love and, and, and respect and, you know, family and friendship. And I just could not find a whole lot of those books anywhere. And, you know, think about the time in 98, we didn't have Amazon. So you couldn't just go onto the computer and Google black books about friendship and have it pop up. You literally had to go to the store and depend on the bookstore to actually care about those kinds of books, stock them and keep them stocked so that parents like me could go in and find them. And that just was not the case. And, you know, the travesty of it all is that all these years later, that baby is now 21. She'll be 22 this year. And those books are still, quite frankly, in my opinion, few and far between. Do you think books that, let's say, feature, like you said, turtles or foxes or bears or whatever it may be, that publishers think, oh, this will this will be okay and this will this will apply to everybody because we're we're not showing one type of person over another so we're not showing any type of favoritism but that really is a disservice when children can't see themselves reflected in a book absolutely i mean you know as a black mother who read for years and years and years to black children and who still goes to schools and reads to all children really sad that my child is more likely to see a bear, you know, talking about friendship and love than they are a child who looks like them. And so I founded the Neen Milner Books with the express intent of uh, publishing books that speak to the everyday humanity of Black children, feature Black children and families, and focus on those everyday experiences that you get in books, but rarely featuring Black children. And as part of that mission, I know you're also planning to, to seek out and publish new Black storytellers and artists. What's that process been like for you to go out and look for this talent? <laughs> you know what? It's, it, it's been relatively easy, quite frankly. And a big part of that has been about me being a, a writer, right? So writers hang out with writers. They have a lot of writer friends. I love art, so there are a lot of artists that I, I purchase for my per personal collection and that, um, you know, like I follow on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all the different places where people now engage, um, you know, fans and audiences with their work. And the first thing I do is I just go to my friends and say, hey, what do you have? Um, and that's the way that it worked out for Crown and Ode to the Fresh Cut. That was one of the first books that I published on Deneen Milner Books. And uh, the author, Derek Barnes, uh, had this book just sitting on his computer. And I, I went to him and I was like, what, you know, what, what stories do you have on your computer that haven't been published and that, you know, maybe uh, weren't uh sort of welcomes with open arms by, by editors and, you know, can I see it? And he sent me Crown. And it was just a beautiful book about a little boy who goes to the barbershop 
and sits in the barber's chair and gets treated like he's a prince, you know, like he matters, like, uh, you know, that he's surrounded by black men who laugh and talk and show him how to be. And to me, that is a universal story. You know, I raised, I helped to raise a black son. He's my stepson. And I'm surrounded by black boys. Uh, had a black brother, have a black dad. And I know what the barbershop means to them. And so that story made sense to me. Um, maybe not to some other, you know, editors who are not familiar with bar- black barbershop culture in particular. And so it was nothing to me to say, yes, absolutely, let's publish this. And we did. And that book went on to win every major award there was to win in that season. Um, and you know, that speaks to um, not only uh, Derek's uh, ability to tell a beautiful story and Gordon C. James's ability as a fine artist to um, create the storytelling illustri- um, at, in the illustrations, but it just speaks to the need for more people to be able to be in the positions where they can see those stories and really understand that they are important and necessary and true and go ahead and put them on the page for children who deserve to see them. And I'm not just saying that only black children need to see them. Every child needs to see them because when a white child looks at a story about a little black boy going to get his hair cut, he can identify with that story, right? He gets his hair cut too, whether it's at home or in a barbershop. But that child also gets to see the experience of a, you know, a child who may be sitting next to him in class or playing with him out on the playground and get to see, uh, a, get a window into what the world is like for that child and be able to commiserate and appreciate who that child is as a human being. And so, you know, it's very easy for me to find those stories because there are black storytellers and illustrators out there who are dying to tell these beautiful stories, who have the experience and these incredible words to be able to do that and maybe just didn't or haven't had the chance to do so. And I'm happy to provide that chance. So that means it must be hard to pick the ones that you have chosen to to launch your imprint with just because you have so many wonderful choices to choose from. I, let me tell you, it, it is never ending. The stream of manuscripts that come across my desk are, you know, phenomenal. And I do as much as I can. Simon & Schuster, working with Simon & Schuster has been an absolute joy because they have decades of experience publishing children's books in a way that helps to, um, you know, not only make the production of them seamless, but also teams who are familiar and really, really good at marketing and promoting those books. And so, you know, that was something that I didn't necessarily have at the last publishing company that I worked at. I'm grateful to them for opening the door and allowing me the space to dream this, this dream up this idea to publish children's books. But at Simon & Schuster, it, it sort of stepped up the game so that I can, you know, publish books that uh, I didn't necessarily have the chance to when I was running a much smaller, tighter imprint. And one example of that is Me and Mama, 
which is a book by Cosby A. Cabrera, which just last week won a Caldecott Honor and a Coretta Scott King Honor Award for illustration. Um, she, Her agent showed me that book when I was at the smaller publishing house, and I couldn't afford it. I didn't have the money to buy it. Um, and, you know, the agent was like, hey, I know that you like this, but that's not going to be enough money for my client. And, you know, more power to her for holding the line on that. Because another issue with black creators is that we just do not get paid the same amount as um, our white contemporaries. And, you know, that was something that was uh, that was needed out or shown um, in Technicolor uh, during the publishing paid me hashtag that went viral uh, late last year. And so um, my ability as uh, a, a publisher at Simon & Schuster with the backing and wallet of Simon & Schuster is that I can also seek out authors and illustrators and help them get their quotes up, right? So it's like I didn't have a whole lot of money before. And, you know, I'm not saying that I'm money bags now, but, you know, I can certainly pay them much more than I could before. And in some cases, the authors and illustrators are making more money than they have um, working on books at other publishing houses. And so I'm really proud of that, you know, that um, I'm creating this opportunity for authors and illustrators to realize their dream. I know as a writer, it means everything to me to see my words in a book. Um, So it's great to help them realize those dreams and help them get paid their work. I don't want to put you in a tight spot, but I know that there's been a lot of discussion about the lack of diversity in publishing. Are you starting to see change? Because they say they're changing. Are you seeing that change? And do you think we're we're making, are they making enough headway towards printing authors who aren't white and telling other stories? Well, if you look at the statistics, um, the statistics still bear out that we're still um, in, in the mud. On, on in that regard. Um, there are statistics from 2019, I believe, that say that of more than 3,000 children's picture books published uh, in that year, only about 12% of them featured characters that were Black. And of that 12%, only about 90 of those books were either written by or illustrated by Black people. That's That's a paltry number. That's crazy talk that only 90 books out of 3,000 were actually either written or illustrated by Black people. Um, That's nuts. If you look at the books that are coming out now, there's some incredible work coming out of Kwame Alexander's uh, imprint, Versify. Chris Myers is doing some incredible work. And there are, you know, of course, editors who see the beauty of all kinds of books and, and, and do not, uh, you know, discriminate in that kind of way. There's beautiful books coming out of black people, but I submit that just, it just aren't enough. We haven't cracked that, um, that, that barrier that, uh, you know, leads to a plethora of opportunities for black authors and illustrators and for black stories on the shelves. And so there's still a whole lot of work to do. And I know that you're going to be hard at work making sure that happens. Absolutely. It's my joy. You know, this is this is a passion of mine. You know, this isn't work for me. You know, my my day job is writing books. I write novels and I collaborate on celebrity uh, books. I write essays and write for magazines and, and, you know, do things like that. But 
publishing these books on this imprint is a passion of mine. It's a joy, a passion that, you know, grew with my belly in 1998. And I'm really glad to see it manifesting all these years later. One more thing before I let you go. I've heard you say that you didn't see yourself reflected in a book until your freshman year of college. And when you stop Mm -hmm. to think that some kids somewhere will pick up one of these books that you're helping to usher into the world and see themselves reflected on the page for the first time at hopefully a young age, how does that make you feel? Ooh, okay. See, now you're going to make me cry. Um, The idea that a child could... You know, for a birthday present or for a Christmas present or just a mom like my mom who just always, you know, knew that I loved books and would spend her hard-earned money going to the bookstore and making sure that I had a new book, you know, to read and to add to my collection. The idea that a child could pick up just like a mama or me and mama or crown or there's a dragon in my closet or my rainy day rocket ship or wings of ebony and and see themselves just makes my heart beat fast it really does my my heart pounds with the idea that a child would look at that book and say mommy i love this book look at this looks like me be, I, to to see that I see it in in classrooms when I read to children, the look in their eye and the way that they, you know, turn around and they talk about those stories and relate them to their own lives. There's nothing like it. It's it's the most beautiful thing ever for children to be able to see that. I didn't have that when I was growing up. Like one of my favorite books was Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, by Judy Bloom, and there were two things in that book that that stood out to me that probably every little girl who read that book tried to do, right? There was the, I must, I must, I must increase my bust. I will, I will, I will increase my skill, right? And we all sat in our bedrooms and did that. And then the other thing was, you know, like her tips for how to grow your hair. And it was, you know, brush your hair at least 20 times every night before you go to bed. And I could do the I must, I must, I must increase my bust thing, right? I didn't see any, and I still haven't seen any, um, (laughs) you know, any... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it never worked for me. But when it came to, you know, brushing up the hair, we didn't have brushes in our house because we didn't brush our hair. We have thick, curly hair that requires us to comb it. And, and even when my mother would press my hair out um, with a hot comb and, and make it so that it was straight, brushing it would break my hair, literally break my hair in half because of, um, you know, the delicacy. It was just delicate. And so, you know, like I, I just never understood that. And it was when I read that that I realized this book wasn't necessarily about me. I could read it and I could look at it as a good story, but it wasn't about me. And as a little black girl growing up in Long Island, um, you know, surrounded by white folks, it was hard to read that book and recognize that I wasn't being seen in that moment. Even as a kid, I recognized that. And so, um, you know, I, the first book I read with black characters, which is crazy talk, but the first book that I read with black characters was uh, Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, and that was in freshman year. And it was then that I was able to see myself. And, you know, that's a travesty. And so I'm praying that the books that I'm 
putting out through Janine Milner Books, the opportunities that I'm creating for black storytellers and illustrators changes that narrative that does it, does it for one little girl who is able to pick up that book or one little boy who is able to pick up Crown and see themselves, and I've done my job. I've done that little girl back in Long Island, New York, justice. And these books, we can find them wherever we pick up books, indie bookstores, the big chains, online, right? Absolutely. Wherever books are sold, you can find Janine Milner books. Janine Milner, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and really sharing your passion. And I hope that people go out and seek out these books for their own kids because there's nothing like connecting with characters in a book and knowing they're just like you. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me and for the great conversation. It's been over 100 years since the Russian imperial family was murdered by Bolsheviks in St. Petersburg. And yet, the mystery surrounding the family and whether anyone survived the execution has spurred imaginations, not to mention a few books and movies, for years. Now, if you think there are no more questions about the Romanovs, author M.J. Rose has a story for you. She tells us how she stumbled across the mystery that inspired her latest novel, The Last Tiara. I read an article in 2012 about a book that was discovered in, the, um, in, in Virginia in the National Gemological Institute Library. And it was a book that was published in 1922 that contained photographs of Romanoff royal jewels. And there's a very famous 1925 version of that same book. And the people who discovered it discovered that there were four pieces of jewelry in the 1922 version that did not appear in the 1925 version. And the book had been created by the Bolsheviks, so they could sell, they wanted to sell all the royal Russian crown jewels to raise money for buying tractors and plowing the fields and all the things that they had to do in Russia to feed the people. So I was completely caught up in the fact that what, where are the three jewels that are in the 1922 version that are missing in the 1925 version? Because nobody knows anything about them. And one of them is a sapphire and diamond, very important tiara. And so I began researching this tiara, and that led to me writing a novel about the tiara and what might have happened to it. And so the book takes place in 1948 when Isabel Moon discovers in her recently deceased mother's apartment the tiara in a hidden niche in a wall, except there are no stones left in the tiara. It's just an empty skeleton of a once beautiful piece of jewelry. And there begins the tale, and I alternate back and forth between Isabel's search to find out what this thing is and her mother's story in 1917 in Russia telling you how she found the tiara, what happened, a little bit of a love story, a lot of a mystery, and a lot of Russian history. You know, when you stumble across something like that, it's got to be catnip to a writer like you. Oh, my God. I have a notebook of things like this. But this <laughs> was one of the most catnippy that I'd ever come in contact with. I mean, a real-life missing Romanov tiara that's been missing for 100 years. It was just like there were so many places you could go with it, and all the research that I did I, I kept being nervous because the article was written in 2012. I kept being nervous while I was thinking about it and researching it that someone was going to find it <laughs> and I wasn't going to be able to keep writing my novel. But nobody did find it and uh, I got to finish my book. 
I can't believe that, you know, that it's been 100 years since the Russian Tsar was disposed. But the mystery surrounding his family and the Romanovs, they just continue to capture the imagination. Why do you think that still is? It's so fascinating. I've wondered it, too. I can tell in the pre-order numbers for the book and, and the, the way the book's being ordered that it's, I'm the same writer. You know, it's another book in, in a series of books that are similar to I've been writing about jewelry and uh, famous jewels for a while. My last book was about the Hope Diamond, Cartier's Hope. Before that, there was a book that had Tiffany in it. But this one, is, I can see that there's a, a marked difference in how it's being received. Now, I haven't changed as a writer, but there's a big difference, which is the word Romanov. And it's fascinating. It's, I, I don't know, honestly. I've read so many books now about Russia, the revolution, about the, the czar. You know, and there were a lot of problems. The family weren't, they weren't the nicest people in the world. I think that the way that they died is so horrific and shocking to people, to see people who have that much money and that much opulence and live in all these palaces, winding up living in a you know, a, a torn down, ratty old house in Siberia. And I think that it's the children. You know, the fact that there were all these young girls and this one young boy that were murdered along with their parents, sort of not different from why are we still obsessed with Marie Antoinette? Right. And I guess in her case, everybody always remembers whether it's true or not, the let them eat cake, which doesn't really lend her any sympathy. But with the Romanovs, I think I'm totally with you. I think really the kids had a lot to do with it. Yeah. And, and with Marie Antoinette, knowing that she was, you know, she was fairly young and she'd had she'd had a pretty hard life as as queens go in how her relationship with her husband went. And um, I think Kirsten Dunst did such a great job in that movie, which is that weird um, movie about her life. But that's another another subject for another book. <laughs> so the last tiara also features a new secret society of your own creation called the Midas Society. Tell us a little bit about what their mission is, because I know we don't want to give a lot away. No, but they're going to be appearing. I'm writing the next book now, and they're now going to start showing up in quite a few books. So I created, uh, based on a lot of groups that do exist, you know, there's been a lot of stolen uh, artwork and jewelry throughout history. And uh, certainly in World War II, what the Nazis plundered from Jews and, and others in every country, stealing artwork and jewelry, there have been a lot of investigations. A lot of groups have been um, come to light to deal with all those things. So I created a secret society called the Midas Society, but mine goes back to the 1500s. And it's, it's a group of jewelers, auctioneers, collectors, gallery owners, museum curators who vow that if anything comes across their desk to buy or sell, that has been stolen, that they sense has been stolen or they're worried about it being stolen. They pledge not to buy it or sell it, but first bring it to the society and let the society do its research and discover what, in fact, this is. So um, in this book, Isabel brings the tiara to a jeweler to find out what, in fact, it might be, not knowing that the jeweler belongs to the Midas Society. So when he sees the tiara, he has to investigate it. He's, he's like by promising to be part of the society, he can't just pass it by. So that leads us into something that becomes a little bit suspenseful. You know, I recently heard you speak at a virtual authors forum and you mentioned that every five or six years you become fully engrossed in a subject and you write about it. 
As you mentioned, you've been writing about jewels and jewelers for a little bit, a little while now. Has that interest waned at all, or do you see yourself like stuck with jewelry for the foreseeable future at least? Yeah, yeah. I sort of feel from now on for two reasons. <laughs> One is the Midas Society can really go on for a long time in books because they're investigating lost or stolen objects, which really gives me a lot of latitude. But also... Um, I also say a lot of the time that um, I write books so I can do the research because that's really what I love. And now I can also say I write books because I love the research and I love jewelry. I've always loved jewelry. And this writing these books about jewelry lets me spend a lot of time with something that I'm very passionate about without without wasting my time. You know, I can just immerse myself in the lives of different jewelers and pieces of jewelry. And there's so many stories, you know, who owned the jewelry, who made the jewelry, the time periods. It's such a rich, vast tapestry that I can mine. And there aren't a lot of other, what I really like, um, and I usually am happiest when one of these things, and it's always been true, not a lot of other people are writing about it. Like when I wrote about sex therapists, nobody else was writing about that. When I did my reincarnation series, nobody would written about reincarnation in a really long time. When I did my witch series, the way that I did that hadn't been done before. And um, so now the jewelry is kind of like, um, it's becoming my territory. The way Fiona Davis, I don't know if you know her, but Fiona Davis has this great territory of, she starts each book, each book takes place at a famous building in Manhattan. And she weaves her story around that building. Like the most recent one is Lions of Fifth Avenue. And it's woven around the famous library on 42nd Street. So I kind of see this as becoming like very fertile stomping ground for quite a while. And I'm writing the next book, which is in the same vein. And I already have the idea for the book after that. So I'm definitely stuck here for a while. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I really, I've I've enjoyed multiple of your books when you're doing reincarnation and all that. And now that you've segued into Jules. And honestly, I mean, how... It can't be that tough to want to stare at beautiful jewels and gems for as long as possible. Especially in this world that has so much that's difficult and ugly in it lately, it seems. It's a, it's a nice escape to open up a book of Romanoff royal jewels and look at the pictures of another time gone by and these amazing pieces of jewelry. You know, a lot of people have been calling. I, I've written six books six books that have to do with perfume also in the reincarnation series and jewelry like perfume are considered art by, by a lot of people. I mean, the average person doesn't consider perfume or jewelry and art, but just paintings and sculptures and print prints and architecture photography. But I really think that they are our eighth and ninth art, both jewelry and perfume. So it's really nice to spend time in that world. And I love that you shine a light on a on a different kind of beauty and maybe turn people's attentions to something they didn't they didn't think of it in that way before. But when you really take a step back, and especially after you read one of your books, you realize, you know what, MJ has a point. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. We've been talking with MJ Rose. The new book is The Last Tiara. And a fun fact, the picture of the tiara on the cover is the actual missing Romanov tiara, right? Yes, it absolutely is. Um, there is a picture because of that 1922 catalog. We do have a picture of the tiara that's missing. And so the artist who did my cover used that picture to create his interpretation of it. It'll be quite the day if it's ever found. 
Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> Thank you for your time today, MJ. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you again. Have a lovely day. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. I hope we've inspired you to pick up a book or two. And if you do, let us know by tagging us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS ADD Books. Next time, we get tangled up in author Steve Barry's web. Wink, wink. Happy reading. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.